Hi guys, I am Jen. I am your community director here at Forefront Brooklyn. And as I was writing this message, thinking about poetry and the Psalms, my Facebook feed was filling up with words and clips and admiration for the great actor Robin Williams. So I thought there's no better way for us to start this conversation this morning than to watch Dead Poet Society. It's one of my favorite movies, one of those movies that I can turn to when I need to feel good and alive and full of poetry. And in it, they perform A Midsummer Night's Dream. So if you asked me who my favorite poet is, I would have to say, as cliche as this might be, it's William Shakespeare. I actually fell in love with him freshman year of college, because I was a theater major. Uh, I signed up for a master class, which I confess, I only signed up for it because I thought that Zach Braff was going to be there, and I was obsessed with the movie Garden State at the time. But Zach canceled last minute. <laughs> and instead, I found myself listening to these actors and directors, some of whom were women, which was new for me, who were talking about the years of study they'd put into Shakespeare and his plays and why they still do them. And I found whole new role models. So from there, I started reading every play, every book, every bio that I could get my hands on. And this love affair with Shakespeare, it actually led me all the way to London to study classical acting for a semester. And it's still, his plays are still something that I can turn to whenever I need a little grace and beauty and art in my life for a little while. And as an actor, when you dive into Shakespeare's plays, you start to learn all the ways in which he's communicating with you through the page. But you learn this by breaking it all down first. So you learn to examine every comma, every period, every blank space. You know where there are consonants, capitals, rhymes. You literally do all these crazy exercises, jumping around the room, breathing and pulsing out the iambic pentameter or the rhythm of the poem. Also, you can learn whether he wrote your character to be scared or confused or excited or whatever. Every detail of how he laid it out on the page, it all contains clues. And I loved this. I thought it was so much fun to figure these things out. There are a couple lines from Twelfth Night. Hallo, you're named the reverberate hills and make the babbling gossip of the air cry out Olivia. Oh, you should not rest between the elements of air and earth, but you should pity me. I know those words like the back of my hand to this day because I spent so much time trying to do them well freshman year, trying to breathe through the vowels and not let my Midwest dialect get in the way. <laughs> but I loved it. I loved marking up my script with dashes and marks to remind myself of everything that I had learned. It was like being Sherlock Holmes or something, like tracing all these clues just to put together this big mystery the mystery of unveiling my own character and then playing in it confidently. So when I come to the Psalms, I see Shakespeare. My eyes light up, remembering all the work that I did to develop this craft and how now I can use it to break down this entirely different kind of verse, this Hebrew verse. And I just realized that being a student of literature, a student of Shakespeare, it has set me up perfectly to be a student of the Bible. You know, I can't tell you how many times my own spiritual journey has clicked into a higher level of understanding because of something that I learned from the stage, from devoting myself to a craft day in and day out for more than 10 years of my life. I recently heard a famous chef say that oftentimes we think that if we have learned something once, then that's it, we've learned it. 
But no, he said, true craftsmanship only comes about when you've done something over and over and over again, and you know it deep inside on a personal level, and you can recognize it in all kinds of different forms. So can you guys relate to this? I mean, is there something in your life that you're passionate about like this? Or maybe it was something that was hard for you to learn at first, but now it just kind of comes second nature to you. We all have something. And maybe it's more, you know, an art or craft, something like that. But maybe it's a relationship, like learning what it's like to be a wife or a mother for the first time. Or maybe it's New York City. If you moved here from somewhere else, then you might be able to relate to me. Those first few days when you get here, you know, I thought I was a Chicagoan, so I thought I knew what I was doing. But the MTA, the subway map, it just, that's a whole other mess, right? So you realize after those first couple of days of panic when you're walking around with your map, because for me this was in the days before internet and Google Maps on my phone, you're walking around realizing you look like a tourist, but pretty soon you realize, I don't have to do this all at once. I can just figure out one train line. I can start with that. So I was living in Murray Hill at the time. I know, don't judge me. (laughs) And so for me, I started out with the sixth train. Okay, and from there you quickly learn that you can catch the six and it takes you to the four or five. You find yourself in the Bronx. That's how you learn what express and local means. <laughs> or you go downtown, you take the six and transfer. You find yourself going to see a show at BAM in Brooklyn for the first time and your life has changed forever, right? But it all starts with one train line. From there, the city just opens up. You know, soon you're tackling bus routes and you've got tourists asking you for directions instead. Well, practicing a spiritual life, I think, can sometimes feel that way too. Sometimes we have this desire to take it a level further or to learn something new, to answer a big question, but we don't know exactly where to start. Well, it's in the same spirit, this desire to build a craft one step at a time, to make something second nature to us, so much so that we can even talk about it with others, right? That's how I hope our community will approach the Psalms. I hope that we'll see them as building blocks of a common spiritual vocabulary, coming to them with that same passion that we have as we open up our favorite novel for the fifth time or listen to that song that we've loved since we were a kid or that family story that you laugh at every time because it reminds you of who you are and where you're from. You know, just as Shakespeare has helped to shape my worldview and my understanding of the Psalms, over the past couple of weeks, we've been hearing from speakers like Watson and Joe and Jonathan, who've been telling us how the Psalms have shaped their worldview and what they come away from it with. And I hope by now you're starting to see that the Psalms can serve kind of as an entry point to the larger arc of the biblical story. You know, if you start with the Psalms, you you soon realize that you can go to the Old Testament because a lot of the Psalms have references to Old Testament history, to God's faithfulness to the people of Israel. Or you move forward and you realize that Jesus and his disciples, they quote the Psalms often in the New Testament. And what I hope you're starting to see by now too is that The reason they're so popular, the reason why they've been used for thousands of years, is because they communicate this raw human emotion, just begging us to go to them for comfort when we're lonely, for encouragement when we're sad, for thanksgiving when we're full of praise. 
Do you guys have any friends who've been Christians maybe for a long time, or maybe you've heard about people like this, that they somehow always seem to remain peaceful and calm, even amongst the worst that life has to offer? Like those friends who still believe in God, even after they've had three miscarriages. Or um, that cancer patient who is hopeful, even though they know that death is around the corner. How do they do it? Do you ever wonder about that? Are they just always peaceful and happy? And that is that the way that I'm supposed to try to be with my faith? Well, this is why I love the Psalms, because when you dig into them, you see that, no, the Psalms are full of emotion. They're full of that depression, that crying out to God, the lamenting, all of it. It's all there. And in the end, it always comes back to hope, to this God who's been at work, who's been there waiting for us for so many years. I think that's why the Psalms still resonate with us, because they're teaching us to embrace our humanity. They're teaching us what it looks like to truly have an honest relationship with God. The theologian Walter Brueggemann says, The Psalms, with a few exceptions, are not the voice of God addressing us. They are rather the voice of our own common humanity. Gathered over a long period of time, it speaks about life the way it really is. And for thousands of years, this is exactly what the Psalms have been used for. So I think it helps us a little bit to kind of look at the context of this book when we come to it. So for the Jewish people, Psalms are used in the morning, afternoon, and evening prayer times. They're said at collective corporate worship gathering. Certain psalms are even associated with certain times of your life. So in this way, for an observant Jew, the psalms would be a regular part of your spiritual rhythms, right? They'd just be a part of your vocabulary. You could even hear them at special moments in life, like at the bedside of someone who's ill, or at funerals, or in blessings before a meal. And we have a little bit of this in our our culture, right? But not so much. We don't necessarily have songs and poems that we associate with times in life as much anymore. Maybe there's scripture that you associate with weddings or with funerals, but I can relate to this a little better because I've kind of done this individually for myself throughout the years, kind of amassing all those poems or songs that have meant something to me throughout my life. So whenever I hear Green Day's Time of Your Life, I always feel like I'm back in the hopes and dreams of my senior year of high school. You know, maybe for you, it's a poem or a song that your mom always sang to you growing up. You hear it now, and it just sort of takes you back to home. Or maybe it's just a mantra, something that you've collected along the way that gives you that extra boost of courage when you need it most. I like to think of the Psalms that way, that they're these poems that remind the Jewish people of God's past faithfulness to them, even during difficult times. But they also point them towards a future Messiah, a deliverer. You know, the people believed that this Messiah would come and that he would be a descendant of King David and he would rescue them from Roman occupation. So I like to think that when Jesus shows up on the scene, something in them must have clicked, right? Something must have said, yes, this is the guy that we've been waiting for because they knew the prophecies in the Psalms. Like the back of their hands, these were the words that they could speak to each other. They were a part of their spiritual vocabulary. So maybe that's the reason why they were all just so willing to give up their lives and follow Jesus. You know, and as we watch the disciples, as they journey through the course of his ministry over, over Jesus' lifetime on earth, it starts to kind of come together. These bits and pieces of prophetic scripture, these psalms, right? They start to point us towards the person of Jesus, towards the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. 
I love that you can kind of start to see the story make sense through the thread of the Psalms. It's like navigating a Shakespeare play. You start with just a couple of lines, and then soon all this vocabulary is opened up to you. These little bits and pieces, they start to come together. These songs, these words of poetry, they start to become clues that point us towards the coming Christ. And Psalm 118 is an example of this. We call these messianic psalms. And I want us to focus in on verses 22 to 24. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. The Lord has done it this very day. Let us rejoice today and be glad. So we call this psalm messianic because it's in the light of the New Testament that these lines show that they're pointing us towards recognizing the coming Christ. But really, we think the psalm was written by King David, that he's referring to the words of Isaiah and Zechariah, two Old Testament prophets who use this metaphor to explain who God is. So a cornerstone, I want us to understand what that is. There's a picture of one here. A cornerstone is the first stone that you set in the construction of a stone or brick foundation. So it's important because wherever you put the cornerstone, that's where you're going to put the rest of the building. It determines the orientation for the rest of the structure, right? So this kind of makes sense to me, this metaphor for God. Make him your cornerstone. Lay your foundation where he's pointing. David knew that metaphor. He knew the words of the prophets. They were part of his spiritual vocabulary, his faith. So when he needed words to explain what he was feeling, it makes sense that he reached for these metaphors. And remember, Jesus and his disciples, they were good little Jewish boys. They knew their prayers too, so they knew David's words. And here in the Gospel of Matthew, we see Jesus quoting Psalm 118. He says to the Pharisees, Did you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. So remember what we talked about a minute ago that these psalms were part of the rhythm of the Jewish life, right? So here he is talking kind of snotty-like to these Pharisees, the leaders of the Jewish community, and they're standing there probably saying, yeah, we've heard this, thanks so much. But when Jesus puts them on his own lips, he's applying them in a completely different way. He's shifting the course of Jewish thinking. He's saying that to them, you're looking for a Messiah? Look no more. I am the Messiah. I am the cornerstone. I am the one that you should lay your foundation on. Me, the Son of God, the Deliverer, the Anointed One, it's me. I fulfill the prophecy in a completely different way than you expected. And he knows that these words are dangerous words to speak. So, in a way, what we've got here is kind of a little bit of early protest poetry. I like to think of it anyway. Jesus is using these familiar words to say to the people in power, you're getting it all wrong. These poems, they point to me. I am the cornerstone. So to some, like the Pharisees, you know, this is really scary news. He's overturning the system. He's taking away their power. But to others, to the ones who believed in him, who chose to follow him, this is the basis of all hope. And this is what I love about Jesus in the Gospels, because you see how he takes these old poems and he fills them with this new meaning. He shakes up his audience. He is a master at improv, at satire. He knows how to craft a story like no one else. You know, if you wonder why we love stories here at Forefront, well, it's because Jesus loves stories. 
And I encourage you guys to come back next week because we're going to start a whole new series called Storyline. And we're going to dig into the parables of Jesus. So specifically, this Matthew passage, it comes from the parable of the wicked tenants. And we're going to start there next week. So come back to learn how he uses these stories to spread the word and to rile up his enemies. You know, I was, I've been thinking about this, this protest poetry. We went to the Brooklyn Museum a couple of weeks ago to go see the Ai Weiwei exhibit. Ai Weiwei is one of China's most provocative contemporary artists today. And if you're not into the art scene, that's fine. You might recognize his work because he did the Bird's Nest Stadium at the 2008 Beijing Olympics. You guys remember that? So since then, he has been arrested. He's had his blog removed by the Chinese government. He has had his passport revoked so that he can't leave China. And if you think that these works of art are just backpacks hanging from the ceiling or pipes laying across the floor, well, then think again. All of this, he's getting all this attention just because his work focuses in on human rights and freedom of expression. And it obviously has enough power that the Chinese government wants to keep an eye on him. I don't know. You know, as I've been thinking about this, the way that Jesus uses poetry to rile up his enemies like that, and tracing through this biblical map, I have to stop and consider, what is it that makes poetry so powerful? Or any art form, for that matter. What is it about these tiny little poems that have carried so much emotion and experience for so many years? Why do people still want to produce Shakespeare's plays? It's crazy. But when I stop to think about it, I realize it's because poetry is a lyrical presentation of knowledge that, given any other way, would not strike its audience so profoundly. It's why it captures the imaginations of the students in Dead Poet Society. You know, it, it has this ability to bring about smiles or laughter, cries and heartache, all in a single saying. And it predates literacy. Before there were readers, there were poets. It's this carefully crafted storytelling that knows no borders. It crosses cultures, genders, generations. It's this powerful medium that history writers and politicians cannot control, for whoever can speak an honest word can tell a poem. It's why you see Jesus and David and later his disciples, you see how they use these words with such fierceness. They knew the power of poetry. They need language. When they need language more than ever, they call on the Psalms. It's why you still see poetry rising up out of oppressed people. It's why you see incredible art and songs coming out of revolutions in places like Egypt and Libya. It's why you see artists moving into deserted neighborhoods like they're doing in Detroit, and through art, they revitalize a dying community. It's why our country cannot come together to feed the hungry and clothe the poor, but we can easily unite in grieving and mourning over a man like Robin Williams, who taught us so much about our humanity while making us laugh. I truly believe in the power of poetry. And I think that the biblical writers did too. Almost every book in the Bible has some poetry in it. From the Psalms, to the words of the prophets, to Mary's song. And I think it's because it truly helps us to understand the heart of God. Shortly before his ascension, Christ reminds the disciples, everything I told you while I was with you comes to this. All the things written about me in the law of Moses, in the prophets, and the Psalms have to be fulfilled. 
And if you jump ahead further into the New Testament and you see the days of the early church in the books of Acts or Ephesians or 1 Corinthians, you see the disciples, John, Peter, doing as Jesus taught them. Here they are quoting Psalm 118 and other psalms, trying to tell people that Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection, look, it is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And it works because the church starts to grow. And I think it's because these psalms, they take us back to our first language. These are the words that were written by the people of Israel, a people who longed for communion with their creator like no one else. And these poems are just filled with that raw longing. It's like the pages of their journals, right? Have you guys ever had a fight or watched a fight with people who are bilingual? And you notice how um, when you get into that state of really extreme emotion, you tend to go back to your first language, or maybe even your first accent comes out. You sometimes catch that with actors on, on screen, right? Their original accent comes out. It's because when you're in that state of, of extreme emotion like that, you reach for the words that your heart knows best, right? Your first language. Well, wouldn't it be incredible if you were to reach the Psalms when you need words most? When Jesus was on the cross, he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Did you know that that's from Psalm 22? And that he quotes poetry again when he says, Psalm 31, Into your hands I commit my spirit. When every breath must have been a struggle, these are the words that he found worth saying. So what are the words that you find worth saying? What do you turn to when you need to express how you're feeling? How do you talk to God? Where do you get your spiritual vocabulary? A friend told me when I was still new to my faith, he said, if you love Shakespeare, then you're going to love the Bible even more. And I didn't know what that meant at the time, but now it's starting to make a lot of sense. The more I dive into the Bible, the more I realize that I can call on my boy William. Did you know that Shakespeare actually invented over 1,700 words in the English language. Words like laughable, generous, uncomfortable, all kinds of great phrases like hell hath no fury, like a woman scorned, things like that. Words that give so much richness to our human experience. I mean, could you imagine if our community didn't have the word generous to describe our values? These are words that have become the building block of our English language. They're words that we use to communicate, to experience life, to speak to one another, to share our emotions with each other, with ourselves, with God. And I think that the Psalms are like that too, that they are the building blocks of our prayer life, and they supply us with ways to communicate our faith to ourselves, to God, to one another. And when they become a part of your spiritual transformation, they also become a part of your story. And they help to make sense of the world and where your life fits in around it. They situate us together in a larger story. We join our voices with the chorus of all who have been saying these words of hope and singing these songs to a God who is still at work in this world. Four years ago... The world was gripped by the headlines of 33 coal miners. Do you guys remember this? In Chile, they were trapped in the mine 2,000 feet below ground. That's farther down in the ground than the Empire State Building is high, okay? 
And they were stuck down there for 69 days. 69 days. And we know the ending of the story now. It's a great ending, actually. All of the miners were rescued. There's a picture here of the first one coming out, hugging the Chilean president. And in the days that followed, you start to find out what it was that these miners turned to for hope. One of them, who was a leader, he pointed to the Psalms. Two times a day for 69 days, they prayed together. And they didn't just pray, God, deliver us, although I'm sure that was on their lips. They also said the words of Psalm 53. In God's hands are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. I mean, what an act of trust. Whether they lived or died, these were the words that were on their hearts. So what are the words that shape your life? What helps you to make sense of your story? How do you figure out your life in the context of everything that is going on in this world? Who provides your vocabulary? I would suggest that the Psalms are a great place to start. If you don't read your Bible regularly, or if you've never even opened it at all and you're kind of starting to think about it, well, I encourage you to give the Psalms a chance. This has been the prayer book of the people for thousands of years. So maybe just start with a simple psalm in the morning. There's a list on the screen of ways that you can engage with the psalms. We've talked about some of these already throughout this series. And we'll have this list and other things on our blog, forefrontchurch.com slash blog. You can find um, follow-up information about all of the messages that we've had in this series. But I'd suggest that maybe you just start by memorizing one line of a psalm, something that can kind of become your mantra, right? Or maybe, if you're feeling ambitious, memorize a whole psalm. Put it in your back pocket. Have that be the thing that you go to when you need courage. Or if you're just going to read the Psalms every morning, maybe you'll find yourself, you know, reading one that is about joy on a morning when you're full of grief. Or one that is full of lament when you're feeling really good. Maybe use that Psalm to pray for someone else. You know, think of that friend who could use that encouragement. Or pray for someone in the news. Pray for the refugees who know despair like no one else. Or just pray a psalm through your Twitter feed. See what that does for you. If nothing else, just read it and let it wash over you. And keep it there for the time when you need it the most. So I want to close out our series by just reading a quote. This is from the blog of Rachel Held Evans, an author whose blog I really enjoy. And I want to read it because I feel like it kind of wraps it all up for me. There are black marks, but then there are words. There are words, but then there are poems. There are poems, but then there is art. There is art, but then there is beauty. There is beauty, but then there is God. Will you pray with me? Father God, I pray that we would become a community that has your words on our lips. I pray that as we close out this series that just a little bit of, of your wisdom from the Psalms has, has started in our hearts. I pray that each one of us would challenge ourselves this week to take it a step further, to make your words our words, to have your heart be our heart, to hear what you want us to hear, to see what you want us to see, 
I pray that you would do that for each one of us individually. You know what we need. It's in your name we pray. Amen.